Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Jay. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to the last episode of Season 8, Episode 12. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 2nd of February, 2019. And to let you in on a little secret, the oft-incorrect Puxatawney Phil is calling for an early spring. This episode is sponsored by Instabug. I'm Drew Freeman, here with my sadly departing Season 8 co-host, Jay Strawn. Thanks, Drew. On this episode, we have Chris Bailey and David Oaken from IBM, who've recently released the book Server Side Swift with Kitura. Let me tell you a little bit about our guests. Chris has been involved in Swift on Linux and server-side Swift since it was open-sourced in 2015. Chris is a contributor and committer for a number of the Swift.org projects and is a steering committee member for the Server Swift Workgroup. He is also the chief architect for the open-source Kitura server framework. David is a developer advocate for IBM, focusing on Swift in the cloud and other API-oriented practices. He is one of the co-organizers of the Swift Cloud Workshop, a free conference which invites people to discuss uses for Swift in the cloud and everywhere else other than iOS. He is also passionate about open source iOS work with AV Foundation. In this last show of the season, we're going to rip into Katora. We're going to take a deep look into server-side Swift. And later, we'll say goodbye to Jay, ask her how the season went, and tell you how you could wind up joining our show for season nine. But first up to our guests... I guess we should welcome some big blue IBMers today. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Good. And uh, to let our, our uh, audience know, it's, a, it's always tricky to schedule when we've got people located on the East Coast, the Central, and in the UK. So it's been a little bit of a delay to get this show, but I'm really thrilled to get this one on because uh, dipping my toes into Katora, it's just amazing to see the growth just over the last 12 months, it's it's been outstanding, and, and my kudos. Thank you very much. It's really fun to see. Server-side Swift, you know, is a, a, a fairly fledgling um, community. It's, it's a very big mind shift for um, people who are building iOS apps to start thinking about how you build, you know, big server applications that back them. Swift itself has been changing quite a lot. You know, um, everyone fe- felt the pain of migration from Swift 2 to Swift 3, and then from 3 to 3.1. Amen, brother. Uh, but not only has like Swift really stabilized, so has the server ecosystem. Um, Apple did some great work bringing in Swift Neo as some foundational technologies. And we've seen in the last year that server-side Swift is now becoming you know, a real thing. And the adoption that we're seeing has just been huge as a result. Well, let's, let's talk about how Swift moved from being an app-based language or how everybody was focused on iOS as where Swift lives to getting it into the server world. Can you talk about how, how that, that uh, evolution occurred? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. So um, if you think about JavaScript, right? And when Node.js kind of uh, arrived, right, you already had a programming language. So, so Swift could already be programmed to. Um, but what was missing was the ability to take that language and integrate with uh, a different operating system and platform. In the early days of bringing uh, Swift to Linux, the biggest problem was the fact that um, foundation, dispatch, all of those foundational libraries um, were designed to work with Darwin and iOS. They didn't work with Linux. And 
That was actually the first thing I did. I spent about six months working in the open source Swift projects to get those libraries working properly on Linux. And that then meant that anything that you were running that used those libraries in iOS or on a Mac would also run on a, a Linux server. Okay, so we get the libraries underneath everything running in the Linux world. What is the next step? What is it that point that we can say Swift is completely Linux usable or was there more involved? That was largely it. Now, it was not an insignificant piece of work because Foundation itself um, is something like 1,200 APIs. Uh, so getting all of those working took quite a lot of effort. And actually, we're still not 100% there. But the set that is usable on Linux is pretty much everything that you'd ever want to use on a server. So there's a few APIs that don't work on Linux still, but those are ones you're very unlikely to want to use. Um, and at that point, you know, you can write a Hello World application or you can write simple calculators and the like, and they will run on Linux. The next stage of being able to do like real server applications, you need, you know, an HTTP server and you need a way of being able to handle requests coming over a network and handling those in really a concurrent fashion. Um, one of the huge differences between building an iOS app and building a server is your iOS app is going to have precisely one user, right? the owner of the, the iOS device. On a server, we're expecting to have not just you know, a single user at a time, we're expecting to have you know, potentially 10,000 concurrent users using the same application at the same time. So, so that's why bringing concurrency and HTTP servers, et cetera, to the server was the next thing we had to do after we got Linux. And it's found working with the foundational libraries of Swift. And listeners of the show are very aware of us talking about some of the concurrency issues that Swift is facing. The work that you've been doing for Swift on Linux, that's an open source project, is that correct? Yeah, everything that's been going on in the server-side ecosystem for Swift, whether it's you know, the, the work that we did in the Swift.org projects, um, whether it's everything that's been done in Kitora, um, whether it's the stuff that's been done by some of the other web frameworks such as Vapor or Perfect, everybody is working in open source, which means whilst you could say the, the frameworks and the teams are competing because we have frameworks that work differently, it also means we're, we're collaborating. And that's what we've been doing through the, um, the server Swift work group and what projects like Swift Neo bring. It's the ability for us to all collaborate on you know, stuff that's good for the server uh, ecosystem and server users, whilst we still have our own open source frameworks that we work on as well. And we'll, of course, put uh, links in the show notes so that if anybody's interested in taking a look into these open source projects, they too can look in, contribute, load bleeding edge builds as well. So this, of course, now that we, we have this, we have Swift running on Linux, Obviously, we can now start creating things. Give me the 10,000-foot the view of what Kitura is in the world of server-side. Kitura is, at its most basic form, it's a web framework. Right? And that means you can build web applications on a server. Web actually gets used for many things. Um, web doesn't just mean building websites. Generally, it actually these days means building back-end APIs. So if you're building an iOS app and you're using URL session or Alamo Fire or something like that to make a REST request of a backend, what Katora lets you do is implement those REST APIs that your iOS app's gonna call. And one of the, the huge advantages of being able to build it in Swift is the fact that you as a developer can actually build both parts of that and you can share code between the two. So if I want to um, have you know, a basic to-do list application, so I'm going to take a to-do item and I want to be able to save that 
on a server, put it in a database so that you know it persists over time, or I can share my to-do list with someone else. I can actually take a strut or a class that represents that to-do list item from my iOS app, and I can reuse that in the server. Um, and one of the big things in Swift 3 was code, uh, sorry, Swift 4 was codable, which makes it easy to convert that strut or that class into some kind of data and then reconvert that back into the strut or the class on the other side. And that means you can now literally just say, I want to send the data from this strut to the server and it appears as an instance of that struct in my Katora application. You mentioned Alamo Fire. Is it easy to use CocoaPods or other libraries for networking that are also written in Swift? Yeah. So when you're, you're working in your iOS app and you want to work with a Swift server, any of the libraries that you use today, whether that's Alamo Fire or you know, URL session directly, um, works perfectly because they all... Um, pretty much support Codable as a way of sending data. For Kitora, we actually provide our own um, CocoaPod client. Um, it's called Kitora Kit, um, and it's a wrapper around URL session. And really what it does is it facilitates you using Codable, but it also um, lets you share other types um, and other classes between your Kitora server and your client application. If I give you an example, if you wanted to do a query for uh, of your to-do list, so it's kind of like, I want to get all of the to-do list items which are not completed. It, you can create a type with which to do your query. So you can say, okay, um, not completed is a Boolean that I want to have. Now that can be shared with the server. So rather than me sending it as a, you know, kind of like a where statement or a query, I can, I can send an actual type and I receive a concrete type on the server. It really moves you away from using strings, which aren't type safe in which you know, string processing introduces bugs. So it avoids that completely by using the same language and the same types on both sides of the connection. I have to ask because I'm a big fan of Codable. I've, I, I've, I've ripped out so much code since Swift 4 and replaced it with Codable. Uh, but every now and then I find little glitches and gotchas in Codable that aren't there. Has Kitura had a couple of Codable issues yet? Yes. I mean, I think one of the the biggest problems that we see is when um, you've got nested types. Some standards uh, allow you to you know, send data, which there's a keyword inside um, what you're sending that says what the the embedded payload is and because that's dynamic it, you know what you're embed the second type that you're embedding is dependent on the keyword that you put in it codable doesn't deal with that very well um, and that makes it a, a, a lot more difficult for those scenarios but in general codable's been a, a really powerful tool for us we use it extensively throughout Kitora to take things that would otherwise be um, strings and make them type safe. I can I can actually also contribute that my, my own experience with Kitora and Codable has been uh, there's there's one bug in Foundation that actually still exists. So listeners might be familiar with the ISO 8601 standard for representing dates. Yep. As it stands right now, uh, there is a custom encoder in date objects for Swift uh, that will encode it directly into ISO 8601. That date encoder does not jive with the exact same way that an ISO 8601 date is represented in JavaScript. Can't handle milliseconds. 
it cannot handle those milliseconds. No, zero, three, or seven seems to be the going amount of decimal places. So one feature of Kitura that actually solves this problem entirely <laughs> is the ability to write your own custom encoder and decoder logic to extend codable however you may want. Uh, there are some built-in encoders that you can use, such as you can use ISO 8601 out of the box if that suits you. Uh, there's other different kinds you can make, but in the book, actually, we'll cover this when you write a web client for what we're talking about. Uh, there's a chapter that goes over writing one of these custom encoders to include your own logic to handle all possible use cases around ISO 8601. It's a fairly open standard, but the Swift one is limited how it handles it. So by uh, Kitura having the ability to write that custom encoder on top of what already exists, Chris wasn't joking in the sense that it really is using it extensively and in an extensible manner for you to use it however you'd like to. So can I open up Kitura and find ISO 86 working the way I want it to? Or do I need to still roll it myself? You can use it the way that you're expecting to. And if you use it only across an iOS app right now, it'll work just fine. Uh, and we, we solve the edge case of working with other potential clients that may not agree. but. The short answer is everything you need to do is solvable with what Katura gives you out of the box. That's that's nice to hear because, yeah, the, the next question out of my lips was going to be the ISO 8601 dates because that, that was something that I think I posted to the Stack Overflow like the day after I started playing with Codable. I was, uh, I was working on an app that would basically take down stock prices and I was getting all of the uh, the timestamps from the API that I was calling and immediately hit that. And of course, there's a WWDC 19 just around the corner. So who knows what's going to change there? It's always a fun time trying to figure out what's going to come out of the darkness then. We talked about Kitora just out of the box. And there is this magnificent app, which basically lets you plop down the, the frameworks for Kitora applications. Can you talk about the Mac app that and why it was why it was created and some of the uses of that one of the the i guess like difficulties with starting any application is knowing what to start from um, and when you're building a, a server application, you have to do all of the standard tasks of, you know, I've got to set up an HTTP server. Um, from that, it needs to take incoming requests and I need to route them to my code that wants to be able to handle them. And then there's other basics that you kind of would traditionally put into a server application. So there's things like having some monitoring so that I can actually see requests that are coming in, how long they're taking, being able to visualize the state of my application. Then you probably want to have something that will automatically restart the server if it fails. So if it crashes, you want it to come back up again. And there's a whole number of kind of like repetitive tasks that you have to do when you build your first project. So what we did in the, uh, the Mac OS app, and we actually have um, a command line interface that does this as well, is provide the ability to just create um, a project with the boilerplate code so that you don't have to do all of the basics, right? You can just start with having to write the bits of your application that you need to without having to worry about how to set up the framework correctly and so on. Inside that, we provide um, a couple of starter templates. One of those is really a bare bones um, skeleton. It does very little more than just set up the server and let you handle requests. Um, we've then got what we call a fully fledged starter. 
um, and that includes monitoring and auto restart data and that kind of stuff. And then we have one that's designed for building REST APIs because that's this use case for building a, a back end for my iOS application. If I remember correctly from the uh, from the site, uh, there's a wonderful demo video that just gives you Kitora in 15 minutes. But actually, they build a site in 10. Uh, they talk about the fact that there's now a back end for banking. There's also a, 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 a shop app or an app for purchasing products, et cetera, if I'm correct. Yeah, I mean, we've got a number of um, actually some of the biggest you know, companies in the world who've uh, been using um, Kitora and they've got it into production. Um, a couple of the, the groups have been really public about this. Um, so Mercedes-Benz. Um, they've got an iOS app called um, Ask Mercedes, which you know, allows you to, it's kind of like um, uh, an iPhone app that is your user manual for your car. Um, and all of the back end for that is is running in Kitora in production. So that means, you know, I think Mercedes sells something like 2 million cars a year. So increasingly, when you get the Ask Mercedes app with your car, the back end is actually running all Swift on the server. And another group that's been like really public about this is ING. Um, they're a bank in the Netherlands, and they've got a um, a project that was called Banking of Things that is now called Fin F I N N. The idea of that project is eventually they they see devices as being able to make payments. Um, so an example that I've heard them use is around like air filters and air conditioning. Uh, an air filter has a, a limited lifespan before it needs to be replaced. So what they did as one of their um, prototypes was basically have uh, the air conditioning unit, um, once the filter starts to reach the end of its life, the, the air conditioning unit itself is able to order and pay for a new filter. And that filter then just gets delivered to your house um, and you plug it in. So the idea is, you know, increasingly things which you know need to pay for upgrades or replacements would be able to do it themselves. Um, so they've been working on this infrastructure to allow devices to make micropayments. And around that, you know, if it's your money in your account, you obviously need to be able to control all of these devices, give them permissions, view what can be um, what can be um, paid for, and so on. Um, and they've built this um, infrastructure um, entirely in Swift. So their backend servers, their website, their iOS devices, and so on, um, all is running is running Swift. Um, they have now added um, a Node.js SDK to some of their embedded um, device work. Uh, but yes, I mean it's it's amazing what um, people out there are now achieving using um, a, a Swift ecosystem and server-side Swift. I would like to add one thing to that as well. Uh, in in going to multiple conferences with Chris and the team and and talking to people about Swift on the server in general, at first it seemed like the going question was, I'm a Swift developer. Why wouldn't I just choose uh, Node.js or another ecosystem that's a bit more proven and has a bit more uh, maturity to it. Um, and then to that point, the question of why would I as a Node developer even decide to use Swift, uh, it's starting to go the other way around. And I think what Chris just said in the sense that for a Swift server, there is now a Node.js SDK speaks to why people are starting to go the route of Swift on the server because of how lightweight it is. I mean, it's a language that was written to work on a mobile phone, so it's already optimized to work on your servers. And you think about the performance that you get when you apply that kind of lightweight language to a server, 
you get quite a bit of performance and it's starting to become apparent to a lot of people why you would choose to go that ecosystem as opposed to something else that's, uh, you know, quote unquote, a bit more proven these days. Everybody's got their pros and cons, but Swift is starting to show off a lot of its pros here. Coming up in the second half, we're going to delve deeper into Katura and some of the modules that come with it straight out of the box. But first, a word from our sponsor, Instabug. The RayWonderLick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. Instabug is an SDK that completely takes care of your beta testing and user feedback process so you can debug, fix, and improve your app quality faster. Through a one-minute installation guide, you will have a seamless two-way communication channel with users or testers. In-app feedback, shaking their phone and sending feedback which alternatively could have gone to the store. With each feedback, you get all the details necessary along with visual reproduction steps so that you can focus on fixing the issue instead of trying to reproduce it. Automatic crash reporting, aggregated crashes, complete stack trace and reproduction steps so you know exactly which line caused the app to crash and exactly how to reproduce it. In-app chat. Get back to your users, send them a message, and have a chat with them either to let them know their issue's been fixed, apologize for that crash, or gain more feedback, all without having them leave your app. User surveys. Survey your users. You can do a simple NPS survey or a more informative one like MCQ questions to know more about your users. Integrate with your favorite third-party tool like Jira, Slack, Trello, GitHub, whatever, so you and your team can have all your work in one place. All of this just takes two lines of code to integrate into your app. Instabug has a special offer for our listeners. Go to instabug.com slash raywenderlich, sign up, install the SDK, and you will get a free Instabug t-shirt. And again, a special thanks to Instabug for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. We are back with Chris Bailey and David Oaken from IBM, who are telling us about Ketura, and we're going to start diving in there. We talked last about how there are so many things that come out of the box ready to go. And there are so many things, you know, if you're talking about somebody who's an iOS client developer, you don't necessarily think about all those things that you might need in a server, things like the database, etc. So can you talk about what you can find when you are starting with that category. Uh, Chris, you had talked about the fact that you have one app that, uh, one prefab app that really has a lot of these components. Your basic framework when you use the macOS app or the, the CLI to get started, it will give you, it's probably about five or so hundred lines of code. Um, but at the basics, it, it sets up your um, HTTP server connection for you. Um, and sets up configuration. One of the, the key bit things being that you don't want to put any configuration inside your application unless you have to. Um, you don't want to hard code it. You want it all to be available to be configured through, in server terms, an environment variable, 
um, from the command line or through a configuration file. So basically, we embed configuration, we embed server startup and so on. We embed monitoring and logging and all of this is, is set up inside the framework for you. And then uh, all you have to do is start saying, these are the APIs I want to build or these are the web pages I want to, to build with it. Now, we don't put anything in there out of the box for, for database connections, but as part of the, the overall Katora project, um, there are, I think, something like another hundred or so modules that we provide that you can use. Um, there's also a whole number of modules which are available from you know, the wider server community. Um, all of those will work with Katora as well, but we provide a, a hundred or so that you know, get built and tested with Katora as part of our development process. And one of those is um, an ORM. Now, ORM stands for Object Relational Mapper, which doesn't really mean much. But in essence, what it does is it means you can take a Swift object, so a strut or a class, and you can just say, I want to save that to a database. And you can say, actually, I want to fetch all objects of this type from a database. So it lets you basically store and retrieve um, data much like you would with like core data. Um, but it's actually working with a database. Does it also do some queries on that? Yeah, so you can say, you know, save this object or fetch this specific object or fetch all objects of this type that match this criteria. One of the things I said earlier was like, um, you know, we've set up Kitora Kit, which is our iOS CocoaPod for connecting to Kitora to make it easier to share types between client and server. And I said one of those was about how you do queries. What we've actually done is you can create a type um, for like querying data that you can use in your iOS app. You can then use that in Kitora. So it receives the query over the, over the, from your client. And that is then used with the ORM to query the database. So you go from in the iOS app saying, my query is to do items which aren't completed. And that type gets used in the server. And actually we use it in the ORM call. We've tried, kind of tried to align the, the types and the APIs so that you can pipeline everything from client to server to database. We try to do things, so that means that you actually only need to write three lines of code in the server to take a request um, and store or fetch data from a database and return it back to the client. Um, we've been trying to minimize the amount of work that you have to do and make it completely type safe. As I mentioned on the uh, Tora.io site, there's a 15-minute video with a 10-minute demonstration. And one of the things you guys talked about was how you whittled it down to three lines for a REST call. And it's it's amazing to watch because you just don't expect a REST call to be something that you can implement into a server in three lines. So again, kudos on the team for that. I believe Chris was the one in that video you're speaking of, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think I did some of it. And one of my colleagues, Ian Partridge, um, was presenting as well. So it was the two of us. So it's, it's just fascinating to watch that. Uh, now, we, we talked about the ORM, but you also talked about Couch. Uh, so um, my understanding is that some of the modules available are, you know, NoSQL, MySQL, and several others, the modules are available in case you have to use different servers, or different uh, databases. Yes. So um, the ORM itself, um, so the you know this machinery to fetch, store data types, they're actually built on top of those standard database drivers. So if you're using the ORM to work with, say, Postgres, it's using the Postgres driver 
under the covers. And the advantage of that is, so let's say um, for whatever reason, you are a database guru and you know the best way to write the SQL to fetch um, a particular data type from, um, from a database. You can just go into um, the ORM and you can customize the SQL that's used to, to fetch the objects from the database, right? So it, it's all built up in layers. And the most basic layer is a database connector. On top of that, for, for SQL databases, we've got something called Swift Query. And Swift Query is a type safe way of building SQL queries, and then the ORM sits on top of that. All right, so that covers the, the database side of things, but there are so many modules that are not related to databases at all. For example, you have uh, several modules to deal with authentication. Yeah, so there's a couple of different uh, authentication modules, and I think one central way that authentication is dealt with in Kitura, and I'll let Chris expand on this a little bit more, is the concept of middleware. And, and middleware might not be really understandable to iOS developers because it's just not part of something you deal with. But the way you can define middleware is it is something that you opt to occur on your server in the middle of handling a request. So before, like, let's say I make a get request to say, get me all the objects I'm looking for of this type. And if you say, I'm going to register this middleware to occur before that kind of operation is run, or you register on your router, which is explained more in the services of Kitura, authentication is going to be one of those pieces of middleware that you can opt to run before that request is fulfilled. And one of the cool things that Chris and the team have done with Kitura is they've written that middleware to be type safe so that you no longer have to parse out parameters from the JSON, make sure, you know, guard against whether or not they're nil. You can actually just get that authentication object in a type safe manner and pass it around the way you would an object and then say, based on certain operations, you can choose to go on to the next one or reject the request. Uh, so for different kinds of authentication, we've got the ability to handle OAuth, basic HTTP, uh, you know, Chris, what else, what other odd types of authentication do we have available? Yeah, so out of the box, if you wanted to authenticate against Facebook or GitHub, yeah, I mean, most of the, the uh, kind of social media providers for, for authentication, you can use those. Um, there's LDAP, the directory access protocol. You can use that if you want to, to use that as your form of authentication. There's, there's providers for, for, for all of them. But yeah, as David said, kind of what we wanted to do was make it super easy for you to define how to do authentication in one place. So you write maybe five or six lines of code that says, this is how I authenticate a request. And what that returns is an authenticated user. Now, if I want any of my, um, my handlers for these um, REST requests to be authenticated, I just update it to say, by the way, one of the parameters my code is expecting to receive is an authenticated user. And that causes my authentication code to run. So basically, um, these middlewares, you just say, I want the result of this middleware running to be passed to me as a parameter. And that causes the code to run before my handler gets executed. Now, the advantage here is I no longer need to deal with what to do when authentication fails in my code. It's done once in the middleware. So the middleware needs to understand what to do if authentication fails. And the rest of my application code doesn't need to do anything about it. It just says, give me an authenticated user. If authentication fails, then that will return a uh, you know, unauthorized response back, to, back down to the client. So I can basically create a uh, a bare bones attachment into Facebook for my app 
where I'm going to get X piece of information, Y piece of information, and then I can create my entire user base based off of them being able to tie into Facebook and authenticate. Yep. Yes. And and once that middleware returns you the quote unquote authenticated user, it's up to you to decide how you want to associate the user and those properties with the object that you're working with. So for example, let's say you're trying to save a new object uh, with a post request. So you would authenticate that user and then the username and whatever other re- relevant data you get from that authentication call, you can then associate it with that particular object. So that in the future, you could say, get me all objects associated with that user. Well, your authentication gives you that user, and then you can just run with Swift Query or whatever driver you're using a call to say, give me all objects associated with this username. And it's easy to pull out. And so there's there's a good uh, separation principle going on there because you don't have to mix the two and put them all in one place. They're logically separated for you, so you don't have to worry about that. So you could also use multiple as well. You can you can chain together middlewares as much as you want. You can, within reason, register as many as you want. Yes. So the person who's looking at creating an app that says, well, you could register for our app by using Google or Twitter or Facebook or or Foo or Bar. Why not Baz? Yeah. We always, we always skip over Baz. <laughs> the, un, the the unsung hero of computer science. Ubar and Boz. All right, so we've talked about storage. We've talked about auth. And usually the other things that come up, and now I know this one's is big, is monitoring. In the same way that for Carnot, the way we work with databases is built up in layers, right? So you first have your database driver, then you have... You know, the thing that lets you work with database drivers with type safe SQL, and then you have the ORM. Um, we've done kind of a similar approach for, for monitoring. So we have um, a monitoring library that provides APIs. Um, so it allows you to um, add monitoring anywhere in your code. So if you wanted to, you could say, I'm doing authentication. I want to know exactly how long authentication takes. So I put some monitoring around the authentication call. That's what we actually do ourselves inside the framework. So we add um, monitoring around your HTTP requests, for example, by default. We uh, monitor how much CPU you're using, how much memory you're using, and so on. And that's built in. Now, so there's this, this API for adding monitoring data. We also provide an API for consuming monitoring data. So another bit of your code could then consume the monitoring data and um, you could build your own web UI if you wanted to that showed it. At the most basic level, we've got this API and module for providing and consuming monitoring data. On top of that, um, what we do is we we provide something called Swift Metrics Dashboard, which is a a self-hosted monitoring dashboard. So you can go to your Katora server itself um, on slash Swift Metrics Dashboard, and it provides you with a web app that uses WebSockets and dynamically shows you, you know, every HTTP request that's coming into the server, how long it's taking, how much memory and CPU you're taking. So, you know, out of the box, you've got some monitoring. Uh, But we also use that API um, that gives you the monitoring data to um, support other things. Um, And one of those that we support is an open source monitoring stack called Prometheus. So Prometheus is is a data collector. Um, What it does is um, your application itself um, exposes a, a web endpoint on slash metrics, and it provides a load of data there. And Prometheus will poll your application to collect that data. So if you've got you know a thousand instances of your application that's running on the server in order to you know handle four million users at the front end, Prometheus will collect the data from all two thousand of them, 
store it in a database and provide you with the ability to graph and query and set up alerts over that data. Um, and Prometheus itself is designed to allow other things to take the data out of Prometheus. Um, so there's lots of graphing and visualization packages that work with Prometheus. Um, a common one's called Grafana, which lets you basically build your own custom dashboards on top of it. So we support like this you know, built-in dashboard um, called Swift Metrics Dashboard, which comes with Katora that you can use out of the box. And we also support a couple of open source monitoring stacks with Prometheus being the main one. But the fact that we've implemented this low-level API makes it easy for anybody to use that monitoring data for whatever they want. If, if you just wanted to take the monitoring data and write it to a log file, then you can do that. It's easy to do it because we've provided you with an API. But if you want something that's just going to work, then you can install Prometheus and Grafana and build graphs, and you can get that up and running in like half an hour. It's really super simple. So you've had a lot of major releases in the past year, uh, and one of the ones that you were uh, promoted was the fact that you've added in Swift Neo. One of the kind of problems early on in the in the server-side Swift ecosystem was anybody that wanted to create a web framework first had to create an HTTP server. Um, you know, Swift actually has networking code, right? There's a lot of networking code in Foundation, but because Foundation is used on iOS and so on, it's actually used for outbound connections only. It's designed to be used as a client. So if you want to write a server, um, the first problem everybody had was there's no standard library for, for building server networking. So when we built Katora, um, the first thing that we had to do was write our own networking library. So we first did sockets, and there was a package called BlueSocket. On top of that, we had KatoraNet, which was our HTTP server. And then we could actually start trying to worry about building a proper web framework. The other like, web framework teams had to do exactly the same thing. Perfect started off by writing their own server-side sockets and an HTTP parser and an HTTP server. The Vapor team had to do the same thing. Um, back in the early Swift on server days, there was also other frameworks. There was Zewo and so on. And everybody had this, let's start off by building an HTTP server. And that really limits the people building server frameworks to people who actually know that low level, you know, how to write the socket capability. There was a strong desire for us to, to kind of not everyone build their own, but for us to collaborate on a single set of infrastructure. And that's where like the early days of the, the server Swift um, work group um, started. It was looking at how we as the framework providers collaborate on um, uh, a single set of infrastructure for server-side networking. Now, the Apple team were involved in that, um, and the result of it was that Apple came, um, came out with Swift Neo, um, a set of networking infrastructure for highly scalable server applications. Now that that's there, um, most of the framework teams have been looking at how they remove their proprietary self-implemented HTTP and networking libraries and move over to Swift Neo as you know, the standard um, library that we can all collaborate on. We've done that in Katora, um, but we've done it in a staged manner. So basically, we have um, not just ING and Mercedes, but we have quite a number of um, people who are, are using Katora in production. One of the things we didn't want to do was just change the networking infrastructure under them and risk it breaking their application. Um, you know, we work on this theory that once you've got an application that's up and running, um, we shouldn't break you. 
Uh, we should give you more function over time, but we shouldn't break you unless we, you know, unless we, there's no choice. And that should only be because there's a security vulnerability that has to be fixed. The, the community has just grasped on to Kutura like wildfire. Uh, in the uh, in the demonstration uh, on the video, you talk about the adoption rate, the early adopters, the late adopters, the laggards, etc. And it's it's amazing because it's now a very fast ticket direction to get from Swift client writing to writing the server to distributing the server and being able to do a good backend for your own software, even if you're a small company of, of one to three people. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the case. And I'm going to agree with that. I've had endless clients of REST APIs. I have written REST API wrappers. I have done pre-codable post-codable, and I was able to do the first demo in about 10 minutes and create REST APIs. And I cannot believe how easy, without knowing anything other than Swift, that it just all came together. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting my hands on a copy of your book. And I really want to thank both of you guys for coming out to do the show today. Chris, David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Jay. It, it's been great, guys. Thank you so much. And again, you guys can uh, catch up with them at TriSwift Tokyo. Uh, always check online. We'll have more contact information, especially their Twitters in the show notes. But we're not quite done just yet. And when we come back, we'll have a little bit of a wrap up with Jay to talk about how season eight went and to talk about how you could find yourself on this podcast. We're back in just a few moments. Hey, welcome back. Not normally a third section of the show, but Jay, it is the end of season eight and you have, in fact, survived. I did it. This is great. My first podcast ever. The only problem was, and we talked about this before the show, is you had one job and you never pulled it off. And that was you never saw Star Wars, did you? No, I did not. But I didn't sign a contract for that. So uh, just just saying. That's true. That wasn't <laughs> in the contract this year. So so now we know going forward that may actually be in the contract. We don't sign a contract for the show anyway. <laughs> you have to watch this, this, and this to be able to riff <laughs> with Drew. <laughs> Yeah, you have to keep up with Drew's references. Oh, no, that's that's going to doom anybody. <laughs> so let me ask. So this season you got to you, you got to do the uh, the data structures show. Yeah. And uh, you, you've been through a lot. What should the technologies really stuck out in your mind this this season? Hmm. Realm stuck out in my mind a lot. And really anything where you're able to use Swift for something that isn't just developing for iPhones, I think is really cool. That interests me a lot. And how was your enjoyment in getting your Android uh, tentacles? Oh, yeah. Um, let me take that back. I think that Kotlin was my favorite episode because it showed me that you can do Android and not have to learn Java. I mean, you probably would have to eventually, but I really like how similar the languages are, and Android Studio just supports it already. Um, so, yeah, my delve into Android hasn't been uh, awesome. Because I have a job now, but working on it. <laughs> That's right. You didn't have the job when we started this season. Nope. Let's listen. We'll take claim to that. The fact that you've been on the show is what helped you get a job. Oh, it definitely helped. <laughs> so behind the scenes and all of that, how, how was the experience of working on the podcast this season? Oh, it was great. I think that everyone should apply to do this. 
Uh, but really, it's been nice. Uh, I've learned a lot. I think that my public speaking has improved. That's true. With uh, with this, you join Janie as podcast uh, emeritus. You you are you are one of our our permanent past podcasters. Do you want to talk about some of what you went through to uh, to get into the podcast? What kind of things I asked you to do besides watch Star Wars? Well, yeah, besides that. <laughs> We had a Trello board that had all of the guests and the subjects on it. So before each recording, I would do some research into each one of the things so that I had an idea of what we were talking about. As someone who is really only an iOS developer, sometimes uh, there were concepts that were a little bit hard for me to grasp, especially server side. So I've learned a lot doing this podcast. Yeah, I, I love the fact that I walk away from the podcast just going, there's yet another technology I want to eat up. And, and having just done uh, Ketura today and playing with it over the last few weeks, it's amazing how easy it it was. Was to, to learn. So it just makes me go, hey, here's another 10 projects I'll never finish that I want to make. <laughs> yeah. Was David the one that did the Keturah talk at Ray Wenderlich Con last year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went to that. That was really cool. In looking for the podcast host, obviously, Jay's told you, you don't need to know a lot about everything. Having a little bit of technology is good. Um, having technology in some areas is good because you never know when we're going to actually turn to you and say, you're doing the show today. You're going to talk about a technology. <laughs> and we do rotate our podcast host each season, our podcast co-hosts, and we will be looking for our season nine podcast co-host. And this is your chance. If you're interested, you can email us at podcast at raywenderlich.com. One of the things that'll help is we are looking for about three to four minutes of you just recording yourself, telling us who you are, what your tech background is, letting us know who you, a little bit about you, and even some interests that are non-tech, because when it comes down to it, it's got to be somebody who can talk in front of a microphone and somebody who can, well, not make us fall asleep while they're talking. And Jay is both of those things. Thank goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Jay is both of those things. Not she's she's not somebody who makes us fall asleep. And she's <laughs> then we cut it all out and it becomes a uh, an outtake. I know you make me sound amazing. Oh, and and you don't understand that of of the five to eight minutes that I've already recorded, I'm going to be cutting about two thirds of it because I wasn't speaking English. Jay wasn't speaking English. It's nice. It's a good relaxed environment. Yeah, it's really good. Um, there's an interview portion, but our interview portion was really just kind of chatting to see if we could talk to each other like human beings. <laughs> so don't need to get too intimidated. Uh, you should definitely try out if you're interested. And Jay interviewed and didn't think I was uh, not a human being. So, well, apart from my <laughs> alien blood. I didn't know about that. It's a lot of fun. We do invite anybody with a lot of experience, a little of experience. If you've wanted to try it, we do about 12 episodes through a season. We may do one or two special episodes to the side. Recording takes about two hours on a day. Plus, there's a little bit of ramp up time. Mm -hmm. There's flexibility about when you can schedule the podcast as well. Uh, we, we schedule around everyone's schedule. That's about it. Again, if you're interested, please email us at podcast at raywenderlich.com. We expect to get throttled with a lot of email over this. So we take them in the order we get them and we will contact everybody. In the meantime, Jay, again, thank you for a fantastic season. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. And of course, we want to thank Instabug for sponsoring this final episode of Season 8. We have a lot of things in the planning bucket for Season 9 coming up in probably about a month and a half. But until then, as we close the door on Season 8, we open the door on the Emerald Castle. Ray, take us home. And that's a wrap. 
Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.